From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. Each week on the show we're tackling topics including double agents, escape and betrayal. This time on The Spying Game, it's... A question of identity. I had to get on a motorbike and deliver £150,000 worth of bearer bonds to an office pretending to be a security guard. It's probably about £2 million now. Pretending to be a security courier for your own father and not being allowed to ask any questions. It's the nearest I'll ever get to being you. I am devious and manipulative because I'm meant to go into intelligence. Like, that's that's how you should be. <laughs> In children's books, every main character is orphans. And you just take it for granted. Chapter one, the parents die. Why? Because if the parents are around, you can't have an adventure. You have to get rid of them. So you kill them in some way. He ran to the back and he grabbed an RPG. So he threw this over his shoulder. And as the two guys in the car I was with were kind of panicking, and I was like trying to calm them down. I was trying to calm this crazy guy down. But he he came right up and he kept pointing at me and telling me he was going to kill me, you know, doing the beheading signal. Today I'm talking to two guests who in their professional lives need to synthesise the feelings of others whilst at the same time capturing their full attention. I'm joined by author, journalist and screenwriter, the man behind the best-selling teen spy series Alex Ryder, who reimagined Sherlock Holmes and James Bond novels, the Hawthorne books and a host of screen delights, Anthony Horowitz. Thank you so much for joining us. Where do we find you? What stage are you in writing mode? Are you in publicising mode? It's a pleasure to be talking to you, Rory, first of all. I'm actually in the little village of Orford, looking out over the river and the sea in front of me. The island where I'm looking at at this very moment across the river from here was where the atom bomb was tested in the Second World War. And radar was invented just down the coast at Bordsea. So this is a very interesting area for those interested in spycraft in one sort or another. In terms of writing spies, um, I have just finished my third James Bond novel. And in the meantime, I'm thinking <laughs> up a new Alex Ryder. So, I, so I'm between Oh, wonderful. We're also lucky enough to have a former clandestine officer and detachment chief for the Defence Intelligence Agency, an IT specialist and expert in human intelligence, Shawnee Delaney. Shawnee, welcome to The Spying Game. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I should ask you really about fiction and spying and fiction. Do you read a lot of spy fiction? I think I I skip a lot, although, Anthony, I've read some of your work and I love it. I have to say I'm (laughs) quite nervous about talking to the real (laughs) thing who's going to expose all the fantasy and fakeness of my books, but uh, it's lovely to meet you on this this show. (laughs) No, but as, as the real deal, I have to say, there are a lot of aspects of the stories, both Alex Ryder and James Bond, that I can relate to a lot. I'd like to think you read them when you were so young, but it actually steered you towards your current <laughs> career. Yes, when I was three. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, actually, no, you both did start out very, very young. I think, Anthony, you were, did you write your first book at 11? Worse than that, I was practicing my autograph in maths class for the day when I would be in a, in a, line, a book signing on a line. And I was also trying to work out what color penguin spine my books would have when I was grown up because in those days you know they were green they were brown they were blue they were orange and those all meant different sorts of books and I was completely confused as an 11 year old what sort of book I was eventually going to write. I just love how specific your ambition was you actually got it down to what colour the spine was going to be and the first novel it took you another 12 years to do about 
23, I think, when you first published. That is absolutely right. I was. I wrote my first published novel when I was 21. It was published when I was either 22 or 23, and it was a children's book. I still, to this day, don't quite know why I began my career writing children's books. This was the time before J.K. Rowling, when children's books were completely irrelevant. Nobody gave a damn about them. <laughs> Bookshops didn't have specialist book centres. There were no newspapers writing about book writers for children. Uh, but somehow, maybe it was my own sort of rather unhappy childhood and sort of sense of failure as a child that led me to try and fill in the gap by recreating it in books. Yes, you started with, was it The Sinister Secret of Frederick K. Bauer? Which kind of gives us a hint. That's the only one of my books I thought was forgotten. Yes, it's a terrible title, isn't it? <laughs> but it reminds me that all these years later, I'm writing Moonflower Murders and Magpie Murders. I have this thing, obviously, about alliterations that sort of, you know, been following me through my career. But, you know, the funny thing about that book is that it was actually optioned by Disney. I remember going to a screening of a Disney film where everybody in the audience had a copy of this book. And I even wrote the screenplay of it. Of course, it never happened. But it was a very funny intro into my career. But I wrote this book about a very rich kid. It's sort of a, a Dickensian twist on sort of kids swapped up birth. One is rich, one is poor. And uh, I was very, very young when I wrote it. I mean, not much older than the main characters who were in their early teens. And uh, and, it, and it was nearly a huge hit. It just wasn't quite. <laughs> Shawnee, I mean, you were even younger, weren't you, when you first got interested in this whole world of intelligence, international security, secrets? Yeah. What drew you in? Dan Rather. It's all Dan Rather's fault. Oh, blame him. Yeah. I, well, I mean, he was super hot. I had a big crush on him. But, um, <laughs> you know, when the Marine barracks were bombed in Beirut, you know, he did the nightly news. And I remember my father laying down the newspaper, which he usually read during the news. And he was so fascinated about the story. This is 1983. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That I, as a small child, just started paying attention. And I remember like flashes of images. Um, and I remember the seriousness of Dan Rather. And there was just something about all of that that just piqued my curiosity. And so as I got older, I was interested, like I heard the word terrorists or terrorism. And I just... There was just something about that. I wanted to know why do people do that? What motivates people to act in ways, you know, violent ways in their beliefs? And as I got older and more mature, obviously that evolved. It lit a fire and, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into intelligence. Anthony, youthful spies, one of your areas of, of expertise. What, why particularly did you go for younger characters? Well, pre-Alex Ryder, I guess I was making up for my own childhood by writing about sort of rich kids who are unhappy and having adventures and escaping from their parents, all the rest of it. Alex Ryder came simply because of my love of Bond films. In, in a slightly unhappy childhood, which is sort of, you know, one of privilege, yes, but also boarding school and all the sort of the unpleasantness and the violence that went with that and slightly peculiar parents and a very unsatisfactory family being overweight and slightly friendless as a child, all that sort of thing, led me into books. And one of the great joys of my childhood was the James Bond films, which were every once a year at Christmas, approximately, so in November, I seem to remember they came out. And I absolutely loved them. First of all, Sean Connery, then Roger yes. Moore. But Roger Moore got older and older and older as time went on. And one day he watching did. him, the, I always joke that in his last film, the, the gadgets were hidden in his Zimmer frame, but actually watching him in the last film, um, I suddenly thought to myself, you know, he's old enough now to be James Bond's grandfather. Why can't Bond be a teenager? And that was the light bulb yes. moment that changed my life. Make a spy a teenager and you've got something completely different. You have something which is, you know, which at that time hadn't been done. And and that was the decision that changed my life. I think I'm right to think one of the films <laughs> that Roger Moore had a, had a, a legs double. So he'd, he would do this sort of face thing and then he had to walk across the room in a, in a dressing gown. And so he said, I'm just going to sit down here and... You can get in a double to do my walking for me. <laughs> uh, there you go. So young, younger spy. So Shawnee, 
your route, you mentioned an early ambition, but it didn't entirely go to plan, did it? I mean, so plan A was uh, was CIA, was it? Yes. Here's the, the very young girl going, this is what I want to do. And you're thinking, you, you've planned this, right? Everything. So where do you go first? What happens? I'm a planner. I have a plan for my plan for my plan. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so everybody knew CIA. That, you know, I did not know of the Defense Intelligence Agency at the time. The DIA. Yeah, nobody really does. And maybe that's a good thing. But yeah, the CIA was my sole focus. And uh, I had applied when I was in college. Gosh, I was probably 17 or 18 when I applied the first time. They humored me. They gave me interviews. I actually went through a few interviews. And then ultimately, the interviewer said, you know what? We tend to hire older people. I had already like traveled. I had language. Like I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm awesome. Like you, you need to hire me. And they're like, just get a little older. So I applied. <laughs> I applied when I was older. And that's when um, I made it through the whole process. And I was about two weeks out from moving to Washington, D.C. The person I was working with, they're like, you're going to need a car out here. And, and so I had bought a car like I was ready to go. And then they decided that they were decrementing the billet. So they got rid of that position. And I well, they shut it down. It, yeah, it was the like end of my life. I, <laughs> I was devastated. So I, I had to find a workaround. I had to have my plan B, plan C. And I had to follow through with those. Plan B was, you know what? Okay, that didn't work out. I'm going to go into law enforcement. And Mm -hmm. with that law enforcement background, maybe I can pivot into intelligence. And so I applied to be a police officer at five or six different agencies in Northern California. Was top of my class and everything. And then this is this is a very personal story. I have not told many people, but the psychologist actually failed me and said that I was too devious (laughs) and manipulative. (laughs) So at the time, that was heartbreaking. Like you're saying I'm not good enough. But then actually when I came out of my funk and thought about it, I was like, yeah, I am devious and manipulative because I meant to go into intelligence. Like that's, that's how you should be. (laughs) So then I went and signed up for the military. Uh, I went to go take a a test where the military places you. And I chickened out right before because I was terrified that they were going to stick me in a role that just wasn't what I wanted. And so I decided, well, okay, I'm going to go get a master's degree in counterterrorism. I'm going to study, you know, proliferation issues and I'm going to be marketable that way. So that was my other plan. And that that's how I got into the agency. But this is determination that yep. you have to meet a guy at a bar yes. and chat him up. Yep. And you did. I, yep. Killed him with kindness. I had worked at Disneyland, believe it or not. And I used all my Disney skills to win this guy over and convince him that they had to hire me. Sorry, you're going to have to tell me what Disney skills are. <laughs> Um, so customer service, uh, when you're dealing with people who've been waiting in line all day or in the heat and their kids are crying and everyone's annoyed because the ride's broken as a cast member at Disneyland, you're going to have to kill them with kindness and convince them that life is, (laughs) is happy and perfect. And so that's kind of what I did. I like Um, that. Kill them with kindness. That's the title of your next book, Anthony. The next (laughs) I'm just thinking about I'm thinking Shawnee's entire story is the subject of my next book. I mean, from Disney to the CIA via sort of, you know, I can see you sort of, you know, how not to be noticed in a room, dress up as a giant mouse. It's sort of a, it really is a story and a half. No, I was Pluto and Eeyore. I was too tall for Mickey. And then, of course, so you, well, you finally made it, but it was a guy in a bar and you said, right, you're going you're to have to hire me. Yeah, they came and did a recruiting trip um, at my graduate school. The DIA did. And I had learned in, in my research, because 
because shockingly, I do a lot of research. And I had learned that the DIA went through the exact same training as the CIA. It was CIA training at the farm. You know, everybody's heard of that spy school. And um, I was like, all right, that's my way in. That's how I'm going to become a case officer. So when they came to do the recruiting trip, I basically pitched him on me and he's like, let's go get a beer. And so we sat in this bar and I just I essentially recruited him and convinced him that that the DIA needed me. And it worked. Rory, can I jump in? I've got to ask yes, Shawnee something. Do. Shawnee, I, don't, I want to know what you were doing in the CIA. I mean, were you, were you, am I talking to Clarence Starling? Is that, is that, is that who you were? I mean, it's, were you out, out in the field or in the office? I mean, All of the above. So when you go through the training, and there's a lot more training than just the farm that people have heard of, you go through these different uh, types of training and basically escalate your level of tradecraft and your skills. So I was in the field. I did four different war zone tours, two to Iraq, two to Afghanistan. Um, I was stationed in Europe. I was stationed in the U.S. And then um, when I was in Europe, it was really cool because I got to travel all over the world. And I had my own James Bond moments, you know, like casing for nine days in the Seychelles. Whoa. So who were you watching there? I wasn't watching anyone. I was meeting someone um, from a sensitive nation. And so I had to play tourist. Uh, you know, you have cover when you travel and you're meeting with people um, or you're going to bump someone. And so my cover was a tourist and a photographer. I love doing photography. So you keep you keep your cover as close to home as you can. But yeah, so I got to just have a vacation. I got to go scuba diving and take pictures and sightsee. And it was all for work. Not not a bad job. Anthony's eyes are lighting up at the prospect. All these places. <laughs> hey, oh, I've got to now go and research the Seychelles. I can't believe. I know it was it, it was just terrible. A, but this is in the early two thousands. I'm guessing, or sort of, you know, it's a was, it, was this all war on terror related? So most of it was war on terror related, but not everything. Um, we also did strategic things as well. What does that mean? The intelligence that I am acquiring, I write up an intelligence report. That intelligence report gets sent to analysts. It gets sent to different levels of the government. Sometimes things make it into the presidential daily brief. Uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff read my intel. And so depending on what the requirements were, there's you know different requirements for different topics for different countries. Uh, weapons proliferation, for example. And there's a bunch of different requirements within that category. And so you find sources with placement and access within those requirements that you're seeking out. And then you get that human intelligence. You want that ground truth. And then when you pass that to the analysts, the analysts are the ones to validate, okay, we've got other human sources saying the same thing, or they're saying something opposite. So maybe there's some issues with sourcing, things like that. So how do you know how to edit that? Because presumably you've got to give them everything because you don't know what's significant and they do because they have other information coming across, which ties in. Right. So you don't know what they have access to and what they've read. You're basically going going on the belief that your source is being honest. But that's all part of the recruitment cycle, right? You're making sure you're validating that their their placement is accurate and true. They're not saying they have access that they don't. You want to assess their vulnerabilities and their motivations. You want to find out what makes them tick. Could they be blackmailed? Could they be turned into a double? All these things, are they suitable for a clandestine relationship? Anthony, you've got a, a master planner, somebody who's very detailed and serious with their research. I mean, you, you, you've got a very tough work ethic yourself. I mean, you, you research and research and plan. Talk me through your writing regime. How do you, how do you operate? Well, first of all, I feel so small talking to Shawnee. I mean, you know, your adventure is so extraordinary. I mean, I just, I myself, you know, fiction, you know, really is 
face with the reality. It does, does somehow shrink in dimension. But my regime, I mean, funnily enough, I do get to travel. I've been to the Seychelles and I've been to all these different places as well. And it is also work. It's a rather lovely thing where you can sit on a beach and with a notepad and you're actually working in the sunshine. And I can persuade myself <laughs> that that's a good reason to leave my wife and family and go away for two weeks because it is important <laughs> for my book. But my regime is this. I spend a lot of time researching. I mean, for the Alex Ryder books, I didn't really need to research spycraft in particular because I had invented my own arena, the sort of, you know, the department and the people who worked in it were all just sort of largely drawn out of just my work on foils war. So they're all sort of SOE stereotypes, you know, not stereotypes, they're archetypes is the word I'm looking for. That's where they came from. Uh, and I, I wasn't that interested in getting things right. When I was inventing gadgets, for example, it was imagination rather than, you know, thinking up what really might work. But the actual stories themselves, if it was nanotechnology, which is the story of our point blank or outer space archangel um, or GM crops, which is crocodile tears, I would spend a lot of time on the internet, reading books, meeting experts, traveling to places, seeing places. I never write about anywhere that I haven't actually visited. Uh, the two exceptions being outer space for Archangel, which I couldn't go to, but I spoke to an astronaut <laughs> who had spent a lot of time there to get sort of the inside track on what it might have been like. And I wasn't able to get out to, to Minsk and to the edge of Russia for our skeleton key because it was just too difficult. I didn't have a time or for that matter, the money to make the journey. And the truth is that in my world, unlike in Shawnee's world, a lot of what I do is about the semblance of authority. So if you're describing a, a Alex Ryder jumping out of a helicopter to bust through the roof of the Science Museum, which is the last chapter of um, Stormbreaker, you know, that is a preposterous piece of action. But you can sell it if you do a little bit of research about the helicopter, which I do, and if you climb onto the roof of the Science Museum, which I did, and discover that there is, in fact, a window there that a kid could smash through on his way into the museum. So just put the two together and, and add enough authority, and you manage to sell the reality. But I always say that the greater the fiction, the more it needs an anchor. Absolutely. I think what you don't realize is that in the real world, we're doing the exact same thing. I am the jack of all trades, master of none, and I have to sell my reality. I have to sell my authority to whomever I'm I'm working with because they don't all know that I'm U.S. government. You know, they might think that I am working for a private company or corporation. They might think I'm a horrible photographer. Um, but whatever that is, I'm forced to use my imagination the same as you to create these realities for people. But with different stakes, of course, because if you're, you know, if you if you get it wrong, your entire country could be at risk. If I get it wrong, I sell fewer books. You know, that's sort of a balancey <laughs> sort of thing, isn't it? Uh, we, we sort of gloss very lightly over the farm. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? The farm is essentially the, the pinnacle of training. That's where... When you become a case officer or an operations officer, people use those terms interchangeably. Um, that's the training you have to go through to be able to get that certification, essentially. But both the DIA and the CIA have a lot of courses before that. And depending on where you go, there's additional courses, advanced surveillance detection, driving and shooting courses, all that fun stuff where you get to you know, slam into other people's cars and I may or may not squeal every time that happens with excitement. But all of that stuff is all part of it. Can you give us any sort of examples in terms of the essentials of tradecraft? So um, what I can say is, uh, I would say use your imagination, kind of like we're saying, mm -hmm. where if you're trying to approach people from different cultures, different countries, different languages, different backgrounds, how are you going to do that? So it's learning how to build relationships with people you might not have anything in common with. Um, you're also learning tradecraft and how to vet and assess these people. Um, you're learning tradecraft and how to keep them safe, their families safe, how to keep yourself safe, you know, surveillance routes, for example, surveillance detection routes. 
Yeah, that's big, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But in your case, because it was the 9-11, sort of post-9-11 world, I mean, these are a lot of them so extremely sort of male-dominated cultures that you're trying to infiltrate. And, you know, as a woman, that must be particularly difficult. How do you begin with that? Yeah, so I had a lot of self-doubt in the beginning, um, mostly because I had a lot of white male instructors who told me I was going to have trouble working with some some people from specific cultures. And what they didn't know is that it was the exact opposite from what they said. So going into these situations and these countries and working with these people, you know, it took me a few seconds to realize I have a lot in common with these people, regardless of gender or religion or culture. We're humans, right? And when you have mm-hmm. empathy and you are genuine in your respect for people, people can tell. And so it, I think being a woman was was an advantage, actually. I think I'm right to say, I mean, probably your, your best known, uh, in a sense, uh, mission was to get close to somebody who was close to bin Laden or Mullah yes. Omar, and somehow to get into Al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban. Yes. How did you manage to do that? It took me a long time, actually, many meetings to figure out what made this man tick. Um, But I used family. He had a lot of children and education and his children were his true priorities in life. I had not had kids yet. At that point in my life, I had decided that I, I wanted them. I could not have them in in the career that I was doing at the time. So it was kind of this longing. And I was able to really relate to him in our our passion for education and our passion for family. And so appealing to that and his sense of family and taking care, like when I gave him money, I told him it wasn't for him. He couldn't use it. I told him it was for his kids to get a college education because that was important to me and that was important to him. Did you t- was it somebody that you targeted specifically that you were sent to find somebody specifically or anyone and you happen happened to find this particular mother? This was a specific target. We we knew about his um, former access and we knew that he still had access to people that knew where Osama was. And there was just a lot of potential in this op. So there was a lot of pressure to get it right. Anthony, can you imagine having that much pressure on you where they say, there's this specific man who we think knows Bin Laden, we know, knows where he's... Go be friends with him. <laughs> Make friends with him. It is the classic stuff of spy fiction, isn't it? You know, getting the agent who gets close to the target and all that sort of stuff. But to hear it being described for real is um, is astonishing to me. And, 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 you know, as I said, it puts me in my place. One thing that really interests me, Julia, what you're saying is you mentioned earlier that you began your career, I think, in the early 2000s. And, that, and Rory was asking you about your involvement. You mentioned two missions in Iraq and everything. And that, of course, is when I was writing my first Alex Ryder books at the same time. And what is interesting is that, uh, that a lot of what informed me when I was writing those books was a sort of a mistrust about the agencies, the secret agencies, certainly in this country and to a certain extent in America too, a sense that they had betrayed us, that they were that they were not uh, being honest with us. And, and, you know, it's no coincidence that the head of my sort of secret service in the Alex Ryder books is called Alan Blunt. I gave him the name of a traitor, yep. one of our most <laughs> yes. famous traitors. And I still have strong memories, yep. you know, in the build up to the Iraq war. For example, the invasion of 2003 of John Scarlett, who was the head of our secret service, who changed his mind about the advice that he was giving to the government because it seemed at the time to suit Tony Blair's ambitions that the advice should be changed. And in America, I still have strong memories of Colin Powell, the late Colin Powell, giving that extraordinary lecture about all the sort of the different bomb facilities in the desert that Saddam Hussein had. And it was he, yep. talk, he was pointing to latrines and garden sheds and heaven knows what. And, he, and you know, I think it was probably the worst hour of, of that man's very, very distinguished career. So I think it's really interesting to remind us that actually in 2003 and further forward, it wasn't all bad news. You know, there were people like you who were actually protecting us from 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 evil. But but at the same time, my perception was the exact opposite of that. 
Well, the thing is, and, and the, the agency likes to say, the failures are advertised, the successes are not. Mm. So the news, everybody hears all the failures. You see that. That image of Colin Powell presenting, it's burned in my memory too. I was studying Iraq in college and, and grad school, and it's hard, but I think people like me, the people that I worked with, we're such patriots. And it wasn't just for the United States. We wanted to do good for the world. If we mm. could get stability, if we could create good change, whatever our mission was, wherever we were sent, that that was the priority. And so there's a sense when you're on the ground, you're, you're separated from the politics. You, you are focused on the mission. To me, it wasn't a question so much of failure as of the perception was that it was one of deceit. And that was what bothered me, I guess, yeah. because, you know, I had this huge admiration for our special forces, uh, which came came out of working for Foyles War, for example, running Foyles War of the Second World War and the inventiveness of a special operations executive and naval intelligence, which is what gave birth to James Bond. James Bond is a character who exemplifies the sort of the Fleming created the modern spy who is the knight in shining armour, the man that we all admire and respect. Le Carré then comes along after that and twists it on its head and says, no, no, these people aren't quite as sort of, you know, as, as glamorous as you may think. In 2003, I think our perception of spycraft and of the world in which you actually inhabited for real changed not because of mistakes were made, but because there was a sense, certainly in this country, of the public being misled deliberately. And that was what fed and inspired Alex Ryder. And it was, I think, a little bit turned on its head because that was a time when uh, instead of having intelligence and then putting it together a case from the intelligence, in a sense, they knew what they wanted to do and they had to kind of reverse engineer and change the facts to fit the case. The famous 40-minute warning, the dodgy dossier, all that sort of stuff and the and the use of sort of PR and, and, and spin doctors to sell a story that people, don't forget, a million and a half people marched against that war and, mm -hmm. and, they, and they were ignored. But worse than that, their, their fears were not met. They were deflected. And, and, and in this country, I think a lot of damage was done to the, the spying community. I agree. But I think it was, it was that jump, really, that jump from al-Qaeda and the Taliban to Iraq and Saddam Hussein. And, and that was the jump. That was the leap that had to be made. We were following it in real time, sort of doing comedy and reading old um, history books and, and um, French uh, Le Monde Diplomatique and thinking this is an extraordinary connection. But you on the ground there, Shawnee, you have to follow what your leaders ask you to do, but the tradecraft doesn't change. Your biggest thing was you found from this particular mullah that you knew where Bin Laden was, but you didn't know where it where You knew it was Abbottabad. <laughs> he told us, yes, he told me that it was Abbottabad. And actually, um, a good friend of mine has, has mentioned that the way he was saying it was probably a regional thing. So the way he was pronouncing it, my interpreter couldn't figure out. So in my notes, I have Abbottabad question mark. I still have them. And the interpreter was like, I, I don't know what he's saying. So it was a combination of him mumbling a lot. He mumbled a lot. It was a combination of the way he pronounced it. And then it was a small middle of nowhere town, which was the point. I mean, it worked. That's why Osama was there. But yeah, that the, my colleagues could not find it. They couldn't find it on a map. And so the thing is, people started questioning me and questioning him. Well, maybe he's making it up. And I was like, I no, I believe him. He he's he's showing me pictures. Like he was there. And they're like, we we don't know what he's talking about. So this close, we were this close. And how long before Bin Laden was actually apprehended? They got him 
a couple weeks, maybe two, three weeks. It was while I was still there working with this guy. And in fact, they caught Bin Laden. And then the next meeting I had with this this mullah, he was like, I told you, that, right? Right? <laughs> Abadabad, or whoever he said it. And I was like, yes, great. you did a great job. Your intelligence was so helpful. But in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, my God, he was right this whole time and nobody could pinpoint it on a map. So what's your relationship with him now? Has he served his purpose? Do you keep in touch? No. So How are the children? You're not able. I, hopefully, hopefully good um, with the Taliban takeover. I don't know. Because that's ongoing now, of course, isn't it? Because they're back. Mm-hmm. I mean, is he, did he turn on the Taliban or was he always a Taliban and he just... No. So when you are a clandestine source, you don't want anyone to know you're against them. Um, he's, he stayed ingrained with all the people he needed to stay ingrained with. I hope he's well. That's probably one of the hardest things is when you spend so much time building these relationships, you end up truly caring about the people and their families. I've spent a lot of time cooking with wives and aunts and grandmothers and then going in another room and eating dinner with the men. These are people that I care about and then you can never communicate with them again or see them again. It's hard. Is there a time when you think he's ready now and I can recruit him and how does that conversation go each case is different so i can say it depends it depends on the person it depends on their motivations and vulnerabilities um it depends on how much time you spend on target with them with him i was spending eight and nine hours a day like a lot of time um but it took it took several months probably five months or six months or so to get him to the right place what are you doing at this time all of the assessment a lot of talking a lot of listening a lot of waiting for the interpreter to translate my side to him and his side to me so what did he think you were doing all that time he knew i was intelligence where we were there was no way to hide it but there are a lot of countries and a lot of people that i worked with who had no clue i mean i've operated in africa alone where i don't blend in there either so it, it just depends on where you are and who your target is, what your cover is. It has to be appropriate. So for each particular mission, say, right, okay, Shawnee, in this particular case, you're a tourist. Mm-hmm. In this particular case, you are a language teacher. Kind of like James Bond in Forever in a Day, where he pretended to be in the chemical industry, right? That was his cover for action so that he could get the information that he needed. Well, that's very good, because that James Bond was written by you, wasn't it, Anthony? You know, as Shawnee said that, I thought, oh, God, which fool was that one? I can't remember that. Forever the Day, Forever the Day. Oh, yeah, that's one of mine. Thank goodness. I know I've read that one, yeah. Forever the Day was my second Bond novel, taking place uh, at the very beginning of his career. I mean, the three books I've written are going to be of the whole career. So Forever the Day at the start, Trigger Mortis, sort of mid-career, and a new one in the later days, so going into the 1960s. And they approached you? Yeah, I mean, I I had been a fan of Bond since I was, I said, 10 years old, and was a little bit mortified when the estate started doing books by Sebastian Fawkes and Jeffrey Deaver and then William Boyd. Not that they were bad books, on the contrary, but it's just they weren't by me. So I was a little bit irritated by all that and thought to myself, <laughs> nobody, nobody could, do a, could do a job better than me on Bond. So I kept on dropping hints. Whenever I was asked to write an article in a newspaper, I didn't matter what it was about. I would find a way of saying somewhere I wish I could write a Bond novel in the hope that someone from the estate would read the article and invite me. And eventually, eventually they did. They got in touch with me, I think, about sort of six or seven years ago now. And the result was Trigger Morton the first in the series um, and it was just it was just sheer heaven for me because I'm very protective about Bond you have to understand although people you know love the films there is a very very strong core element of people who also love the books and recognise that Ian Fleming is a master of the craft first of all he invented the modern spy story I mean I think you know there, there was John Buchan before him and there's Bulldog Drummond but they've largely been forgotten now and it's interesting that Fleming has lasted largely because of course of the films and when I write the books I'm trying more to encapsulate the books and 
Matt's history, naval intelligence and England in the 50s and 60s, and not the films which are much more fluid and move very successfully, of course, from decade to decade, redefining Bond with both the new actors and the new rules. I mean, the most recent Bond film has suddenly eschewed the gadgets. They've all gone. Suddenly we're not having sex anymore. The Bond girl has more or less disappeared from the films. They reinvent themselves with the moving times. I'm much happier and more comfortable with the actual classic books. Uh, and that's where my mind have been set. I think we need to partner because... <laughs> I, surely I've had exactly the same thought. With your experience and your, your knowledge and my uh, use of alliteration, if nothing else, um, we, could, uh, we, could, we could certainly produce some interesting stuff, I think. This is what Spying Game is all about. Basically, we're, we're a dating service. <laughs> but you say dating, but actually that's funny. That's what it's like to, to develop somebody. You're, you're essentially dating, right? Mm. You're trying to find out their motivations and vulnerabilities. When you were talking, that was what I was going to ask, is can you get too close to the person that you are yes. basically spying yes. on? And, and and dare I say, how far will you go? So that's what we call falling in love with your source. And I'm using air quotes. When I would say leadership perceives that you're too close or you believe your source above all else. Let's say the analyst says, no, I think their information is bad. And you're like, no, no, no. You can get accused of falling in love with your source. And that's bad. No one ever wants to be accused of that. What's interesting, as a woman, you had asked Rory about being a woman mm -hmm. earlier. Obviously, there's a very fine balance in meeting with some men who might perceive different intentions or they might have ulterior motives. There was an older gentleman that I used to meet with and we, we'd have to meet in hotel rooms. And when you meet in the beginning, you have to go through certain administrative stuff. And uh, one of them was what our cover was. If we got interrupted or, or let's say someone, you know, some intelligence service broke in the room, what was our cover story for meeting? And I had this, you know, great cover story and I went through it with him and he stopped and he goes, actually, I have a better idea. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh gosh, uh, okay, go ahead. And he said, we can just tell him we're having an affair. <laughs> and aside from throwing up in my mouth, I was like, well, I don't know that that's believable, so we're going to go with my cover story. You remind me a little bit of the main character in a book I've just finished reading. I don't know if you've read it, Shawnee, called uh, American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson about a female no. agent working for the CIA back in the 60s. You should catch a look at it because it's all oh, about I'll what... read it. It's a fictional version of what you're talking about. And it's so interesting to see the the, the reflection between between what you said and what, and what I read there. I'll look it up. And actually, in fact, Lauren Wilkinson, author of American Spy, will be joining us later in the series on The Spy Game. We'll be able to explore that a little bit further with, with her. We have another connection as well, of course, because boarding school. And, and that's an interesting thing because boarding school breeds novelists, and Sebastian Fawkes, of course, a novelist, and all, also breeds spies. And there's something about that world, isn't it? Where if you want to really get on at a boarding school, you have to, at some element, you have to be good at deception. You have to disguise your real feelings, don't you? you know, maybe it was not getting into Oxbridge in my case of, uh, that was the end of my spying career, because I think it's sort of <laughs> from prep school into boarding school and then into Cambridge or Oxford is where you then get the tap on the shoulder normally in fiction from your tutor who turns out to be connected to MI6 or 5 and that's your way into mm. spying. It never happened for me. I have to say, though, the stories and the tradecraft what you come up with, it could work. Like I, as I'm reading your books, I'm thinking, yeah, that could totally work. You're talking, you even describe motivations of characters and your assessment is so on point. It's how I would assess someone. So you do have some innate ability. Surely that is the best compliment I have ever received. And I am truly <laughs> grateful to you. I'd like to think that that's particularly true. You know, the Alex Ryder books being for young people, you know, I don't think it matters so much to get into adult motivation and to sort of really understand what is going on in his head. And of course, the whole point of those books is he doesn't want to be a spy anyway. So 
So he's he's a reluctant hero, which I've always said is the reason why the books have been so successful. But when it's Bond, and especially in the one I've just finished, which is really all about what happens inside Bond's head, and it's much more, because it's set in 1963, and 1963 is a year the spy who came in from the cold comes out. And it's also a year just before Ian Fleming dies. So it's really set at the time when the old image of spies, Bond, elegance, heroism, patriotism, and, and the British Empire and all that sort of stuff is on the way in this new, much, much colder, much more interesting spycraft uh, and much more detailed and deadlier and, and more deceptive is coming in. So it's right at that moment in time, which is why it was quite interesting to write it. And I'm so pleased to hear you say that I have some kind of understanding of the psychoanalysis of spies because that is what I'm trying to achieve in the new book, which is much less incidentally of a big sort of, you know, blow up the world adventure and much smaller and more sort of detailed in the sort of world that you are describing. Would you like to own a piece of real-life spy history? Well, here's your chance. Spyscape is proud to present an exclusive opportunity to own stunning original artworks from the iconic film of George Orwell's Animal Farm, which was secretly funded by the CIA as a masterpiece of Cold War propaganda. Each moment from this animated film classic is presented as a beautiful original drawing paired with its own accompanying hand-painted animation cell. Spyscape acquired these unrepeatable artworks directly from the filmmakers. Visit spyscape.com slash animalfarm to secure your piece of movie and espionage history. I think that's where people find it so fascinating. When people find out what I do, it's those questions about the psychology behind it. What makes you want to do it? What makes you able to do it? What makes people able to commit treason? So the fact that you're focusing on that psychological aspect, I think, is is going to take you far. Out of interest, when people ask you what you do, do you just cheerfully say, yeah, I'm a spy? Well, I'm not one anymore. Well, I mean, was a spy. But I just thought, thought, because sometimes people will stop me in a plane and say, what do you do? And I'll answer, I'm a concrete engineer, because actually that closes down the conversation. And, I, and, it, and then it means I don't have to hear their idea for a book or talk about my work or do that awful question, are you a famous writer? How do you ever answer that? You say, you know, yes, I am. Well, what have you written? And they've never heard of anything you've done. So Concrete Engineer does it for me. But you will simply say to somebody that you were an agent to spy and open that door to wherever it may go? So back when I did it, I had a cover story, no matter where I was going or what I was doing. Um, it, it's same thing. You try to bore them. You want to lull them into, like, just disinterest. Now that I'm out... Uh, I'm out and proud, if you you will. (laughs) There's another thing in your book. uh, You talk about in Alex Ryder, you're describing a man in the very beginning of the book and you're describing he was gray. He was wearing gray. He looked gray. Everything was gray. And as soon as I read that, I was like, gray man. So they teach you in the farm to be called the gray man. You don't want to stand out in any way, shape or form which is why they, they said I would have trouble. God, if we worked together, I just think what I could write. I mean, I'd stumble on these things by luck, but you could actually tell me, and I could have put that into the book. If I ever rewrite, that's Stormbreak. If I ever rewrite it, I'm going to put that in now. But you did, you did. You say luck, actually. There's a lot of research has gone into it, and, and clearly your interpretation of the research chimes really, really well. And as you were just talking just now about, about the human intelligence part of it, and for all that we love Alex's gadgets, and, and you clearly love them as well, um, it's still that human intelligence, isn't it? I mean, are, are we moving 
moving beyond individuals for intelligence or are intercepts and, and gadgets uh, the future or will it always be human intelligence? Well, in terms of Alex Ryder, I wasn't even going to put gadgets into the book uh, originally because it was too much sort of stealing from the films. You know, in the books by Ian Fleming, there are very few, if any, gadgets. I think maybe one or two. It was the films that invented that and I wanted to avoid them. But when I was talking to kids in schools, that's what they most loved. So I put them into the books. But if I look back at my career and ask myself why it was that I wrote 10 books that didn't really work and then Stormbreaker and then Point Blank, which sort of exploded in the way that they did. The answer is that it was all because Alex was a human being. He was not an adventurer. He didn't want to be a spy. And I was much more interested in him as a person. In children's books, every main character, Harry Potter to most of Roald Dahl's characters, are orphans. And you just take it for granted. Chapter one, the parents die. Why? Because if the parents are around, you can't have an adventure. You have to get rid of them. So you kill them in some way. Uh, that's true of Alex. It's true of many others. But only in these books did I begin to actually think what it must be like to not have parents, to be a blank page, to have nothing behind you, no hinterland, not to have family. I remember when I was writing Eagle Strike, the fourth book in it, Alex goes to another family and he's sitting there watching and there's this girl... Sabina, who turns out to be sort of a girlfriend in the books, and she's with her mum and her dad, and, and they're all round the table together, and they're laughing and chatting in the way a family does, with all that dynamic, and he sits there feeling so sad that he's an outsider. And then, of course, you get into that parallel that maybe not you, Shawnee, but I would have thought that spies are by their very nature outsiders because they they you know when you're dealing with the people that you are targeted to, to to follow and everything you are pretending to be something you are lying to them you're deceiving to them and you have to live with that the whole time so your friendship is a fake one on your side real on theirs uh and that sort of humanity of the character i think is again the reason why these books as opposed to the ones i wrote before took off being a spy is a lonely gig i'm not gonna lie you have to lie to your friends and your family i lost a lot of friends because i would disappear for six or eight months at a time and I couldn't tell them that I was leaving or where I was going. They couldn't email me. I couldn't answer. So it's funny the way you describe, you know, Alex looking at that family unit kind of longingly. I felt the same way in many occasions. You know, you're traveling around the world alone. You're eating all your meals alone. Everything you're doing is alone. And you know, in your mind, there's this great mission and the reason you're doing it. But damn, it's lonely watching everybody eat together or go about their daily life. And you can't even talk to anyone about it. And you're longing for someone you can trust, really, as well. You're longing for yeah. someone you must be. And so that's the interesting thing. We say, I was a spy. But are you not always a spy in the sense that there are parts of your life that you have to keep quiet about? There must be a human instinct to tell somebody. But maybe there's a there's a book in, in you. I mean, are you writing a biography? Would you write a biography? Uh, there's a few. Are you going to collaborate <laughs> with Anthony on those? Oh, we're, we're going to work together. What writing projects have you thought about? I've been working with a team in Hollywood uh, to do some film and television projects focused on insider threat and espionage. I think there's a lot of humanity like we're talking about that people don't really think about when it comes to this dark world. Talk to us a little bit about insider threat. So again, to mention Anthony's books, espionage is insider threat, right? Someone who's able to report using their placement and access on secrets. They're sharing those secrets. That's an insider threat. And and a lot of the what he's writing about is insider threat. Again, in Forever in a Day, where 16 is talking about industrial espionage, essentially. She wants to steal secrets from a man she's cozying up to. Um, that's all insider threat. And so there's a world outside of espionage, outside of what I used to do, that I've pivoted into the real world now where I'm able to teach companies about insider threat and espionage and fraud and sabotage and all the things that kind of go with it. Because that's what I used to do. I used to target the insiders. Can I say, Shawnee, that if you do come to write a book, Insider Threat is a fantastic title. 
It is. <laughs> we'll work on it together then. No, I'm a there if you need me. <laughs> but we are in a fascinating world now, as you say, it's spread out to, to industry and well, what's happening in the States around the world as well, the return of sort of strong men in Turkey and Brazil and the way in which history is repeating itself. But also, you know, we touched on this a little bit earlier on um, about the, the, the kind of, of leaders that we have and the way that, um, you know, truth is distorted as well. It's, it's an absolutely fascinating world there's something that actually does bind the three of us together um and that's being other people in a sense that, that shawnee you said you had to adopt these characters for real and these were your cover stories and you had to stick to these because your life in some case or have you ever been in fear of your life actually yeah absolutely M- many times too many times the, the very last one was i think what put the the nail in the coffin when i was like i'm yeah i'm done like that i don't have the right protection this is stupid, what what we're doing. How did you get out of it? Um, a lot of negotiation, a lot of negotiation. Um, it was a checkpoint. It was a hostile checkpoint. And um, there were three of us in the car. And our license plates were Velcroed on, which was not smart um, because we needed to change plates often. Mm-hmm. And whoever put the license plate on in the morning did not check the BOLO list, the be on the lookout for list. So when there's like a known IED coming in or a, a vehicle born IED, oftentimes the, there will be a BOLO list put out, look for a white Toyota Corolla or whatever. Well, there was a BOLO list that came out with plates from that region that, that we had put on our car. And so when we went through this checkpoint, we got pulled over and there was one guy in particular who was in incredibly hostile uh, to the point where he grabbed his um, his rifle and started after he kept pointing at me I was the only woman and kept making a gesture that he was going to behead me took the butt of his rifle and tried to break all the windows in the car he broke the rearview mirrors off luckily it was a, a minimally up armored vehicle the windows except for the back window that's the only window he didn't try to crack was the back window and he could have gotten right in he was screaming at us saying very bad things um he called somebody on a radio or a truck came up one of those tan trucks and he ran to the back and he grabbed an rpg so he threw this over his shoulder and as the two guys in the car i was with were kind of panicking i went into like weird mom mode and i didn't even have kids at the time and i was like trying to calm them down i was trying to calm this crazy guy down and he pointed the rpg i mean he was very very he was way too close if he wanted to shoot us with it he should have been farther away but he he came right up and he kept pointing at me and telling me he was going to kill me you know doing the beheading signal so i was trying to negotiate with him the guys in the car were like screaming obscenities back and forth with him and i i had to pick up the phone and i called uh, a source in the government of where i was and basically he's like you need to help. I need you to come here right now and get us out of this. And so we had to wait like 15 or 20 minutes. Somebody showed up. I saw some negotiations going on and then they let us go. And oddly, I found out a couple of days later that that guy that caused all the trouble may or may not have gotten killed. Extraordinary. Yeah. Anthony, you're channeling other authors at the Ian Fleming's Voice, and likewise Arthur Conan Doyle, with this case of Sherlock Holmes. To what extent do you do you seek to, to channel their style? So back to the cheerful world of Bond and Holmes. Um, yeah, it's a sort of ventriloquism. It's actually the exact opposite yes. of what writers are trying to do in their books, which is to have a voice, which is to pre- you know to present themselves and their view of the world and their language and their style. What I'm trying to do in these two worlds is to be invisible, almost to become a sort of a I'm going to say an intruder, but by, by that I mean somebody who is standing on the edge and 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 stealing from from Fleming and from Doyle. I have to raise my game because, as I've said, in both cases these are 
really, really superb writers. Fleming, the master of the modern spy novel, but 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 Doyle also, the man we go to, if you want to, you know, what other writer is there that can create an entire world, this case is sort of the world of late Victorian London, in approximately five words? If I say to you sort of cobblestones, gas lamps, growlers, fog, Stradivarius, you know exactly where you are, you know exactly who you're with. It is absolutely perfectly encapsulated. And the thing about Doyle is, is that, you know, it's not his stories that we actually go to. We go, for, I think, to his books for two reasons. The first is that he is a superb gothic romanticist. He can depict with his language um, this, this sort of sense of, of mystery and, and of, of poverty, of, of antiquity, in a way that very, very few other writers can. He also created the greatest friendship in British literature, which is to say the friendship of Holmes and Watson. You cannot have one without the other. And, you know, writing those books, as I say, I felt like not an intruder so much as an interloper. For, you know, for the six glorious months, I spent my time in 221B Baker Street in my imagination, always watching these two people firing off each other and really just writing down what they said, but invisible myself. Same with Bond. That Bond, you know, as written by Fleming, not in the films, is is it's very peculiar the way Fleming writes. He has this thing called acidi. I don't know if you ever come across that phrase or that word, which means a sort of, and I, I imagine surely in her career might have even felt it herself, uh, which is where Bond is looking at the world and not feeling really part of it. It's a sense of sort of displacement and not quite depression, but this, I think we've talked about it a little bit about not belonging. Uh, and, and it is a slightly sad feeling acidy and, and trying to capture that in the books you know Chugger Mortis and Forever in a Day was challenging because Fleming does it so very very well look at the opening chapters of Goldfinger where he's at the airport and he's sort of all life is going on around him but he's not part of it it's a perfect example of what makes Bond so great you're sort of in that world but not of it yeah that's right because of what Shawnee was talking about about having to lie to people having to be deceptive about losing friends Bond has no real friends he's got Felix Leiter who is another agent he's got Bill Tanner, who is sort of number two to M. Uh, he has an interesting father-son relationship with M, and one that was, of course, completely sort of destroyed by the events of 2003, as I was saying. That sense of, you know, father-son and everybody is to be trusted and, and close together. And and he has a, a friend in the French uh, police, and that is about it. And he has a housekeeper called May. He doesn't hang out and have a good time. The opposite, in a sense, of keeping yourself at a distance and, and sort of channeling this is to write yourself into your book as you've done in the Hawthorne book so what was that where you actually introduce yourself as a character or at least a version of yourself yeah I think also but the detective is an interesting character in murder mystery because the detective is also the ultimate outsider he comes to a community everybody knows each other in the community somebody is hiding a secret and the community is in trouble but the moment that the detective has solved the crime and made the community whole again and healed everything he is gone he is out he's finished and nobody wants to know him anymore so someone like Poirot or, or Holmes or any of the big detectives just simply sort of fade into to the distance at the end of the story uh, and and it's it's a rather sad existence in some ways putting myself into into my own books was a sort of a peculiar decision to make but what i was trying to do simply was to turn the whole genre upside down that normally the author of a book whether whether it's christie or doyle or whoever is the omnipresent person the person who knows the most the cleverest person in the book is the writer because the writer knows who the killer is before a single word is written that's where you begin somebody kills somebody else for a reason that's what the, the heart of any murder mystery book is 
But if you're not the writer of the book, but the sidekick to the detective, if you are Watson to Holmes, you have no knowledge at all. You don't know anything. In fact, you don't even have a book unless the detective solves the crime. So by putting myself inside, first the word is murder, the sentence is death, a line to kill, and the new one I'm writing right now, makes me, instead of being clever, it makes me stupid. And that's rather a good thing to be, because I don't even know what <laughs> clues to describe. I mean, you know, if I mention a glass of water is somebody on somebody's desk, how am I to know if that's the glass of water contains strychnine or something and is going to be the, the murder weapon? It's, it's I know nothing. And, and mm. I rather like that. Actually, even the line to kill, that was, did that come out of a real literary festival or did you set an imaginary literary festival on, on Alderney? Alderney was a very, very special place. I mean, it is, it is one of the most remarkable places in the world. It's a tiny island, three miles long, about a half a mile wide. And yet it has in two periods of history been very, very important. First, during the Napoleonic invasions, when they built a whole series of forts to keep out Napoleon, but he never actually came anywhere near. And then again in the Second <laughs> World War, where for some reason they decided that the Germans decided that it was going to be useful as a fortified island and built a whole lot more fortifications, uh, including a one called the Odeon, which looks like something straight out of Star Wars. This island is absolutely jammed with fortresses. None of those were used either because nobody tried to invade Alderney in the Second World War either. On a darker side, Alderney was, of course, occupied by the Nazis in the Second World War. It was British territory, but it was occupied by the Nazis. That's as near as they got. And they did build three labour camps there, one of which silt was uh, a, a scene of many, many murders. And one of the things I had to do in my work, and this is sort of, you know, it's urbane to our conversation in a way, is, is we're talking about espionage and detective fiction as entertainment. And there is a line you can cross, as I'm sure Shawnee could cross quite easily and came close to doing so in that discussion you had about what happened to you at the border, where actually the entertainment value of what we're doing and the fact that we are both of us in different ways, sort of entertaining the public and sort of in, uh, introducing them to a world that they will not encounter in day to day life, where it can actually become really rather horrible and, 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 and we don't want to know. And with Alderney, that was exactly the case. And although I did make mention of the, of the labour camp that was there and of the many deaths and of the thousands of graves that are in the middle of the island I was very careful not to go too far my books are meant to be entertainments they're not meant to be sort of you know deeply upsetting I'm going to end with a couple of mysteries there's a real life mystery of course which, is, which fascinated me because your father who was himself a fascinating character and you were drawn to writing because his wonderful library that he had and he was very successful until he lost all his money as you say but also he put a lot of money into a Swiss bank before he died and you, you never found it. Well, the two things about my father, which was sort of extraordinary, were the fact that he managed to lose all his money, every last penny of it. My mother was completely bankrupt when I was about, just when I was getting published for the first time, she lost every single thing. Her house, I still remember her selling off, you know, things like silver and, and fur coats and all that sort of stuff to try and pay these debts which amounted. And what he had done was he had taken all his money out of one bank in a suitcase in some sort of form and had taken it to another bank and put it in, but didn't tell us which bank. And so for all we know, it's still there. The other thing about him was that he was very much connected with the Labour government at that time, Harold Wilson. Not in any central sort of way. He was one of these sort of figures on a set of satellite. But I remember there was a man called, I think it was George Miller, who was one of his business associates, who was the only man I know who managed to commit suicide by shooting himself in the head twice. Um, <laughs> which is sort of a... It's talent. Yes, that's right. They don't um, teach you that at the farm. A lot of murky goings, a lot of strange things. And my only little tiny brush with all this was when I was about 19 years old, I had to get on a motorbike and deliver £150,000 worth of bearer bonds to an office <laughs> pretending to be a security guard. This is the closest I've come to your world, Johnny. You've got to remember that £150,000 <laughs> then is probably about sort of £2 million now. Yeah. And as I say, it was unchaseable money being given to somebody, I don't know what, pretending to be a security uh, courier for your own father and not being allowed to ask any questions. As I say, it's the nearest I'll ever get to be. 
being you. Well, we've gone back now full circle to reality and, and some, you know, reality does the best twists and turns. You've seen it in your own life, Shawnee, and Anthony in yours. I mean, is a biography looming in your case, Anthony? Uh, what's, what other future projects have you got? I would never write a biography about myself. All I've done basically for sort of 50 odd years is sit in a room and write. And so there's nothing much to write about, about uh, in that. Um, no, just, I mean, I've got the Hawthorne novels. I appear in those and I can keep sort of mentioning little bits out of my life. At the moment, I'm writing one about a play of mine that was put on about, about in London. It absolutely divided the critics. Half of them hated it and half of them loathed it. And I will continue to write more Hawthorns. I don't think I'll do any more Bonds. I'm doing more TV. Uh, I will die with a pen in my hand, hopefully at the end of the last chapter. I mentioned at the beginning, Shorty, about, you know, do you devour a lot of spy fiction? Or because you've lived it already and you've experienced it, I mean, do you either think, well, do you know, I'm, I'm, I, I won't read this because it won't be as good as what I've lived through or I'll be too annoyed by the inaccuracies? Probably the latter. I think a lot of us um, in this line of work... Anthony's work apart, of course. Yeah, of course. I love it. I try to avoid it. Although I will say, like, I've, I've watched every James Bond movie. There are, there are certain shows that I've watched, but a lot of it is so far-fetched. And I think it's almost a little depressing when, you know, you, you watch these movies or read these books where everyone is such a badass and there's always action and guns and chase scenes and all that. And that's not really what it's like. That If it's like that, you're doing a very bad job because bad guys know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute privilege to, to listen to both of you talking about what you do and your own lives in different areas, but with so many similar themes running through them and you two definitely have to get it to write, write a book and it's an absolute pleasure and so unusual to, to have a talk and Rory a hero of mine for so many years this has been just a real real pleasure for well, me thank you both that's very very kind it's been my pleasure thank you so much Shawnee Delaney and Anthony Horowitz for joining The Spying Game Up next on The Spying Game if you really want to see success in this life and the next you do it with this and he picked up the AK-47 I didn't know the tower was going to fall. Who would have thought that, you know, back then? But when you see your fellow human beings dying, how can you leave? Part of the appeal of playing a spy for actors is that it feels so second nature to them, that they do feel a kinship with spies. I had been playing a game, and the game is called Life. The scariest part of the work that I did is wading into the worldview of the person that you perhaps hate and fear most in the world and actually giving it the time of day. I had a permit from the government, from a sovereign government, to be a criminal. I joined thinking I would have a lot of trouble lying to people about what I did, <laughs> and it took about a week for me to get used to it. For them, I'm a traitor, I'm enemy of the state. We are not in touch by opinions. When I took my face off, he almost fainted <laughs> because he had no idea that it was coming. Just brilliant. For more shows from the Spyscape Podcast Network, including the hit series True Spies and the great James Bond car robbery, check out spyscape.com. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.